Hi, I'm Mina Karaman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Yemen recently hit a grim anniversary. Seven years of war. The UN calls the situation the world's worst humanitarian crisis. It estimates that 377,000 people have died, either from airstrikes or illness and disease, and nearly 70% of them have been children less than five years old. That's as many as 259,000 children under five. But this war isn't something we hear a lot about. And if you don't know the details, you're not alone. I'll try to give you like a kind of uh, highlights of a war that has so many battles. That's Kemal Al-Solaili. He's a journalist, author, and the director of the School of Journalism, Writing, and Media at the University of British Columbia. He was also born in Yemen. Imagine the spring of 2011, the so-called Arab Spring, and Yemen was not immune. Kemal's our guest today, and he gave us some context about how this war started. Lots of protests in that country led to the then-president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, who had been president for about 32 years at that point, to step down and hand over the government to his deputy, President Hadi. And Hadi was not a particularly strong statesman, and he was kind of overwhelmed by the many problems of Yemen. And from that vacuum, it's a political vacuum, as it were, the Houthi rebels Um, The Houthi, which is a subsect of Shiite Islam, um, took advantage of that vacuum and started marching south uh, towards Sana'a, the capital, and took over the capital in 2014. But neighboring Saudi Arabia is mostly Sunni Muslims. A Saudi-led coalition started bombing Yemen in 2015. The war in Yemen is also a proxy for which sect of Islam, Shiite or Sunni, will dominate the area, will dominate the conversation around Islam moving into the future. In many ways, the Houthis are carrying on and have that military strength, partly because of support, whether it's emotional or actually physical support from Iran. And Saudi obviously does not like that, does not like the idea of seeing Iran having some kind of a, a stronghold so close to its borders. Today on the show, Kemal Al-Solaili on the situation in Yemen, its relationship to the conflict in Ukraine, and why he believes the world has chosen to forget the plight of the Yemeni people. This is The Decibel. Kemal, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me, America. You have family in Yemen. Mm-hmm. What do they tell you about what it's like living there right now? I think the one word I would choose to describe their living situation is uncertainty. They just never know what will happen from one day to the next, whether that is sort of airstrikes uh, from the Saudi-led coalition, whether the continuing story of the uh, bad economy and the um, devaluation of the Yemeni currency, the real, or just uh, the fact that anybody who works in the public sector has not been paid regularly for more than five or six years now. Now, we just passed the, the seven-year anniversary mm-hmm. of this war. 
Has this conflict gotten the attention that it should? I personally don't believe so. A conflict with such catastrophic humanitarian situation should have been like the top story in the news, or at least a, a recurrent story in the news on a regular basis instead of mostly in other news. It's only when there is a phase where the war gets particularly violent or the attacks get you know more intense than usual. But it's been allowed to just one year after another to just carry on. The suffering continues, the war continues, and it's been called the forgotten war. And I've used that term in writing about Yemen in the past. And I just sometimes I think that term is kind of classic passive aggressive. (laughs) It's not forgotten. We choose to forget it. We choose to look away. And I think forgotten implies that it's just like an accident that happens. Oh, you forget to pack lunch today and you leave it on the table and you've forgotten lunch. But this is not. This is a willful act of looking away as far as I'm concerned. And this conflict in Yemen, it's created a situation where where food has become very scarce in parts of the country. Why has this happened? There are many reasons. I would say Yemen, to begin with, even before the war, was a poor country, one of the poorest in the world. But the war just exasperated that in the sense of, first of all, blockades of ports like Hodeida in Yemen, uh, where almost 80% of food supplies enters the country. And famines are sort of man-made crises, because if both sides of the conflict, whether it's the Houthi or the coalition through its proxy government in Yemen, would allow world aid to go through to the most needy will stop shelling areas around the port in the city of Hodeida. The problem would probably still exist, but wouldn't be as intense as it is now. We're talking about a nation where three out of four people are experiencing various forms of hunger, like whether it is what we call food insecurity, defined loosely as just simply not knowing where the next meal is going to come from, but by and large, they get by. So that's millions, millions of people then? Millions, close to 20 million in a country of about 31 million, sort of fall under the different categories of hunger, with at least 5 million are facing what the UN calls famine-like conditions. The other thing about Yemen, uh, I'd like your listeners to, to know that it relies heavily on importing basics like wheat, Uh, which is why the current conflict in Ukraine complicates the hunger issue, because Yemen tends to import at least a third of its wheat from Ukraine and Russia. Kamal, you you wrote a piece for The Globe where you talk about how when Yemen is discussed in Western media, it's mostly in relation to the food shortage that's Mm -hmm. happening there. Why do you think that focus has been solely on this issue? I think there are a number of reasons, but obviously one of them, it, it is such a pressing issue. I mean, when you're talking about 4 million children potentially dying from hunger or facing severe malnutrition, but it is something practical. You provide aid, you import more food, and, and you pay for the cost of importing more food into the country. But it is more difficult to sort of suddenly look at, okay, what's the reality on the ground? What is this Houthi government conflict really about? There are other issues that that I mentioned in the story, then it's the kind of complicity of a number of Western uh, developed nations in continuing to have Saudi on their side by either 
selling weapons to Saudi or kind of making sure that because of the oil uh, and with Saudis being like a, a, one of the richest countries in terms of the energy sector, uh, making sure that it is it is stable, that its needs are met politically and diplomatically. So by focusing on famine, we're not focusing on these other issues that Yemeni people end up really suffering from. And another issue you mentioned in your piece was the impacts of COVID mm-hmm. and the lack of access to vaccines in many parts of the world. Absolutely. And this is something that it has touched my family directly. Um, I've lost two sisters to COVID um, last, last mm. June, 10 days apart. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, thank you. Um, it's been a very tough year in many ways, uh, but neither of them had access to vaccine. Um, but at that point, I was in, the, in June of 2021 from the global COVAX program that promised Yemen 14 million doses. I think only about just under 800,000 have been administered and only half, of, less than half of that are double vaccinated. So, so it just letting the, the virus run rampant in the country, ravaging um, people's lives on top of the, all the other problems, on, on top of the famine, on top of the political and economic insecurity. And the point about COVID is that it really highlighted how the infrastructure of the country um, has been decimated uh, by the war. I mean, we had to put my sisters in um, quote-unquote private hospitals just because there's just, just no room in government-run hospitals. And even they, at the sort of exorbitant rate um, that they were charging a day, kind of 100 US dollars, which is, you know, completely out of reach for millions of Yemenis, um, they were still not very well equipped and they didn't get the medical attention that they deserved. Thank you for being so candid with your with your answer there, Kamal. I know that must not be easy to talk about. Yeah, I made a decision to write about them in that article for the first time because I didn't want their death to go in vain. And I just kind of wanted to mention that because there's everybody is paying a price for this war. take a step back. We've spoken a little bit about the, the geopolitics that, that are at play here. I wonder, has, has Canada had any role in this war? Um, I mean, it has by continuing to sell weapons and arms trade with Saudi Arabia. I mean, since the war began in 2015, $8 billion worth of military vehicles and other equipment were sold uh, to Saudi Arabia. Now, there has been evidence that some of these uh, particularly the land armed vehicles have been spotted in, in Yemen as part of the coalition sort of grand uh, offensive. But Canada itself has not been part of the uh, strategizing around the airstrikes, which is mostly um, the UK, the US and France. So yes, by continuing that sort of economic relationship uh, with Saudi on the level of arms trade, Canada is uh, obviously implicit. And, and I would actually say, I go further, I would go, is complicit in, in this war. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should also mention that Canada has donated uh, nearly $360 million in aid as well to Yemen. I mean, all Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates continue to sort of donate billions of dollars at the same time that they're 
causing uh, tens of billions of dollars of damage to the country. So there is a saying in Arabic, uh, and it's particularly in Egyptian Arabic, that says, which means you kill someone and then you pay respect in the funeral. Just to focus on Canada, it is is highly hypocritical to say that we will continue to sell arms to Saudi and then we'll donate uh, or we'll contribute um, a few million dollars to the um, global aid programs or to direct uh, aid in the country. We have seen the situation in Yemen come up in in the news recently. Uh, People talking about, because the war in Ukraine is happening, how we're paying attention to the conflict in Ukraine Mm -hmm. and haven't really been focusing on this this long-lasting conflict in Yemen. How do you think of the way that Yemen is, is being talked about here? That has been really difficult to watch because Russia's war on Ukraine is a very violent and unprovoked war, and it's a conflict that should have should be addressed on its own terms. What I've found, um, on particularly on social media, is a lot of references to Yemen that has been dragged into uh, this conflict um, to kind of say that where was this outrage when Yemen was being bombed constantly and has been destroyed and facing famine? Um, I really would have appreciated if people were much more vocal about Yemen before the war in Ukraine and not sometimes to just use it as a way of settling scores, which is how it felt to me, because I also felt that there was a lot of posturing on social media around Yemen um, from people who... I mean, I'll, I'll be charitable and say probably can find it on the map, but I would also say that most of them probably don't even know where it is or don't understand the conflict. However, there is a lot of legitimacy to their to the concerns that were raised in that it seems that conflicts don't generate the same response globally, that some conflicts seem to elicit much more of an immediate response, humanitarian response, just like the one in Ukraine right now. And, and that, I mean, in most cases is racially motivated or is because the, the victims of that conflict is seen as more worthy, more human, more deserving of compassion and aid and a, ref, a place of refuge. Uh, whereas that same compassion was, was not extended to um, refugees from Yemen, from the Tigray area of Ethiopia, for example, or, um, or even to Syrian refugees. Yeah, I, I want to pick up on, on that point that you're making there, because I, I think this is important to talk about. We've seen this play out again in, in Western media, where when we're talking about Ukrainian refugees, we've had members of the media describing people as civilized, quote unquote, civilized, um, that this isn't a conflict like what's happening in Afghanistan or Iraq. What has this coverage shown you, I guess, about how conflicts in certain parts of the world are viewed by people in the West sometimes? I mean, I'm going to put on my my hat as a journalism professor and say that is a real problem in mainstream media. It illustrated a point about who gets to talk to the to the audience and what are the assumptions of these news anchors who had to check their words before saying, these Ukrainian people are civilized, not like those people. There's a direct assumption that they're talking to people who look like them, who are mostly um, uh, white and probably middle class. But the other side of this is, for me, is the issue of empathy. Part of me is against empathy, because I think we tend to empathize with people who look like us, who we can identify with. 
which is why sort of European nations are kind of much more relaxed about opening borders and welcoming refugees from Ukraine than there have ever been uh, with Syrian or uh, refugees from elsewhere from the Middle East or Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and empathy is is a dangerous emotion in that sense, and it should not be used to guide public policy around refugee. A refugee is a refugee is a refugee. That's what United Nations rules, what, this, what the global community has agreed to. But in reality, however, um, the life of a white refugee is worth more uh, than that of a brown or black one. You wrote a book called Brown a few years ago in which you discuss the place of brown people or, or more broadly racialized people really in the world. From what you're seeing today, Kamal, especially when we're talking about war and refugees, how do you think the position of brown people has changed, if it's changed, since you wrote that book? Well, you know, the bulk of that book was written, uh, actually all of it was written before Trump and before Brexit. Um and I think since then, we, we have entered into a, a whole new world where the quiet part are much more, you know, said out loud, um, where hostility to, to people based on race, that, that even in a country like Canada, that would have conflicted with our multiculturalism and our, um, our reputation for tolerance and inclusion, has been much more outward. I think since that book came out uh, in 2016, the world has changed in, in, in such, uh, I mean, it's just surprising and, and, and so fast. I think, I think the thing I, I would argue is that it has changed so fast, even in what is relatively in, in six short years. Let's go back to, to the situation in Yemen. Are there things that countries like Canada should be more actively doing? What I would like Canada to do is to leverage some of its um, global reputation as a peacemaker. By Canada not being the U.S., it can actually leverage that to use some of its resources uh, and diplomatic capital to try to bring people to the table. Now, the, the problem with that, of course, is that um, despite our booming trade with Saudi Arabia um, on the arms front, um, we've had our own diplomatic tensions with Saudi, so we're not necessarily going to get the ears of um, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. However, we have to use other diplomatic channels to work around that. And just lastly, what about your, your family that are in Yemen? Are, are they going to stay there? They will stay there. Um, it's our homeland. They don't want to become refugees. Nobody, they're not interested in uh, being treated as second-class citizens. Uh, in having borders closed in, um, in their face. To, uh, and they're holding on. They've decided a long time ago they're not going to leave the country. And I mean, as much as I've been trying to get them out um, of Yemen, maybe to Cairo, um, um, uh, but they, they have consistently refused my office of help and they've decided to just stick it out. And it speaks to their strong, strong relationship with the homeland of Yemen. Kamal, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation today. Thank you so much, Monica. It's a pleasure to talk to you. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our intern is Rose Danen. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show, and Michal Stein edited this episode. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.